Coming up on Tech Nation, longtime entrepreneur Safi Bacall. He's here today with Loon Shots, how to nurture the crazy ideas that win wars, cure diseases, and transform industries. And a French biotech, Sensorian Pharmaceuticals. It's making progress in the area of severe vertigo, sudden hearing loss, and hearing loss in children following treatment for cancer. Also, ProQR Therapeutics will cover its efforts to treat such genetic diseases as childhood blindness. We'll learn how it works and why it's safe. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. I drove over the hill the other day, which isn't all that remarkable since I live in San Francisco. But what I saw for the very first time in my view of downtown was a huge skyscraper, noticeably bigger and higher than anything nearby. Your brain does funny things when it sees something different from what it expects. And my reptilian brain, the oldest part of our human neuro capacity and in control of such vitals as heart rate and breathing, decided to bring me up short. I pulled over and got out my smartphone. I soon learned that I was looking at Salesforce Tower, about to be the tallest building in San Francisco, or actually already there, but not quite completed. It had no nearby buddies to compare to, as the formerly highest record holder, the famous Transamerica Pyramid, is some number of blocks away and happened to be out of my view. Even so, the pyramid narrows as it goes up, ultimately poking modestly into the sky. Not so with Salesforce Tower. It goes straight up, filling the entire airspace wall to wall. We haven't seen such changes in San Francisco's skyline since the pyramid made its debut in 1972, nearly a half century ago. Now that's old news, dwarfed by this new tower, which stands solitary and embraced in construction cladding, multiple cranes forming an optical balancing act. There's a new skyline here, all right, and my conscious brain told whatever other parts of my brain that would listen, you had better get used to this, and fast. I've had this feeling before, also driving near my home, when I expected to look across the tops of the trees in Golden Gate Park, and then one day, pop! the new de Young Fine Arts Museum, rebuilt to address its earthquake problems, introduced a taller tower. Its observation deck enables a 360-degree view, but as they say, if they can see you, you can see them. This got me to thinking about all kinds of structures that have been built by humans over the centuries. There's the Great Wall of China, or rather a succession of walls, which given the technology couldn't have sprung up so fast it took anyone by surprise. Even the Eiffel Tower was built close in to some old Paris neighborhoods. Think about going outside, and the Eiffel Tower is, look up, right there. If the Parisians had only extended its antenna by seven feet, it would match the height of Salesforce Tower. 
Yet, like the Transamerica Pyramid, the point of the Eiffel Tower pokes respectfully into the sky, transparent through its famous iron erector-set struts. Building large structures, whether walls or towers or skyscrapers, has been a curious human endeavor for as long as humans have invented the technology to do so. Whether defensive or political or economic or just because we could, they were built. And somehow, history and photographs and everything Internet tends to look at the structures and not the people. Not the many, many people whose personal space becomes changed forever. Medieval towns dwarfed by castles large and small, bridges across pristine waters, and much, much more. And then I remembered, Golden Gate Park is not the natural habitat of a dense stand of trees. No, it's sand dunes, all the way to the beach. Another example of grand vision and technology. Humans have an incredible ability to embrace technology as if it were a natural and permanent part of our lives. That in itself is very curious. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Safi Bacall about the crazy ideas that were ridiculed and rejected and then turned out to be brilliant. And a French biotech firm working in the area of sudden hearing loss, severe vertigo, and a connected problem, hearing loss in children after cancer treatments. Finally, what we can do when our DNA fails us. A Dutch company, publicly traded in the U.S., is approaching childhood blindness and other genetic diseases. We're all familiar with the popular term moonshots, undertaking a really big, ambitious goal. But Safi Bacall has written a book entitled Loon Shots. I asked him, what's a loon shot? Everybody knows what a moonshot is. It's a, it's a destination. It's a big, exciting goal that gets widely applauded. Like when, when President Kennedy in 1961 announced to Congress that we would place a man on a moon, he was widely applauded and admired. But the interesting thing is that 40 years earlier when a man named Robert Goddard had described how we might get there with jet propulsion and liquid-fueled rockets, he was widely ridiculed. I mean, the New York Times at the time put out an editorial saying that this guy is a professor who is a, quote, chair in physics, doesn't understand the basic laws of physics that we teach in high school every year, namely that Newton's laws of action and reaction make rocket flight in space impossible. By the way, I have to say that in July 11, 1969, the day after the Apollo 11 successful launch to the moon, the Times issued a retraction. <laughs> there said, you go. Apparently, rocket flight is not inconsistent with the laws of physics, and quote, the Times regrets the error. So Kennedy's announcement was a classic moonshot, 
Goddard's ideas were a classic loon shot. Nobody believes you. Nobody believes you. You know, that rather than you know blowing trumpets and red carpets announcing some big thing, the big ideas that change the course of science, business, and history often are dismissed or neglected or even ridiculed for years, sometimes for decades, and their champions are written off as crazy. That's why I call them loonshots. Now, I have to say that everybody, I think, has come up with a good idea and felt the burn. You know, people say, that's not a very good idea. It'll never work. You never do it that way. There's a hundred things that they say to you. And part of the problem is that you can't just go off, not say anything, and do it yourself. To really get big things done takes buy-in, takes people really jumping on board with you. Absolutely. I think, you know, in my I spent many years in drug discovery and working on new cancer drugs, and I think people don't quite realize there's a very long distance between an idea and a finished product. So I was just talking to somebody yesterday, like, well, this is really, really hard. We worked years on this, so let's start a company. That'll be easy compared to what I did. But really, the the idea is getting the ball to, like, your 20-yard line, and then you got another 80 yards to march it down the field to get to a finished product. And there's no way to get just from a single idea and a single champion to a finished product. You need tons. You need people who developed a prototype, people who understand the market, the people who work with the regulatory agencies, people who package it up. And unless they're also excited, you've got nothing. You've just got an idea. Now, you looked at this and said, I think I understand what will make this work. And you're talking about the science of phase changing? That's right. So... Imagine you have a glass of water. You can stick your finger in and slush it around. And that's always true for any liquid, except as you gradually change the temperature, all of a sudden, the molecules will completely change their behavior. They'll go from fluid and sloshing around to completely rigid. But why? The molecules inside are exactly the same. How do they know to suddenly change behavior? There's no lead CEO molecule saying, be squishy, one day, be rigid the next day. There's, be water, be ice. Exactly. Yeah. There's something about the structure, something about the interacting forces between them, those molecules that they don't need to be told. They suddenly rearrange. And so the interesting thing is applying and extending those ideas, not just as a metaphor or analogy, but actually mathematically by looking at the incentives inside organizations. Whenever you bring groups of people together to form a team, a company, or even a nation, and see how those incentives will suddenly shift from encouraging, embracing wild new ideas to becoming rigid and rejecting those same ideas. So in a sense, the environment determines in many cases whether they say that is just a terrific idea or get out of here. Right. And part of how I started all this stuff is when I was uh, when I first started a biotech company, I was a pretty young guy. And so like a lot of first-time entrepreneurs, first-time leaders and managers, I read everything I could find about you know, how to be a better leader, how to build a great culture. And so much of that stuff was, in fact, about culture. You know, innovate, 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 empower. And, you know, some of that stuff makes sense. You obviously want to celebrate your employees as opposed to humiliating them. That's probably a good idea. But after a while, it all sort of feels kind of squishy. It all sort of sounds the same. And I was looking for some sort of harder understanding. And it also... It didn't quite add up because you would see these companies talk about, you know, what great cultures they had, what great cultures they have, and then the next day they'd be in the toilet. So it was the same culture, 
yet they were all of a sudden went from embracing wild new ideas to to killing them. And so that's where I started thinking about is there something else going on? And most of the books or literature that I read have always focused on culture and none have actually said, well, why don't we just think through what people's incentives are? And that's where I started realizing that you know, everybody had when you f- arrange people to, into a group, you create two forms of incentives. And that's exactly the same thing that happened. And it reminded me of my from my background in physics and theoretical physics, it reminded me that a phase transition in nature is always the result of two competing forces. It's like a tug of war. And as soon as the tug of war flips, you get a phase transition. So in water, there's entropy that wants molecules to rush around and be free. And there's binding energy that wants to lock every molecule 2.8 angstroms from its neighbor, not 2.7 or not 2.9. And as you adjust the temperature, the relative strength of those two forces changes. Boom. At 32 Fahrenheit, they cross and the system snaps. And that's the idea within teams, companies, or nations is that there are these two incentives for employees and organizations. And you, as you adjust some elements of organization design, the relative strength of those incentives changes. And all of a sudden, boom, the system will snap. And people, will, the same people will go from embracing wild new ideas to rigidly rejecting them. And I've seen that happen kind of in practice. And it ended up explaining a lot of weird things that suddenly made sense. How did that happen? Yeah. The Germans had the Luftwaffe, the planes outclassed anything the Allies had, and they looked ready to bomb Europe into submission, and, and they did within weeks. And then they had discovered in January 1939 something called nuclear fission, splitting the atom, which put Hitler within reach of the most destructive weapon ever created by mankind. And so the uh, it was Vannevar Bush at MIT. It was dean of engineering at MIT who recognized the threat he quit his job, moved to Washington, talked his way into a 10-minute meeting with FDR and said, we're going to lose this war because it's going to be a technology-driven war and the military will never catch up. Now, he had worked with the military. He respected the military and he understood that he would never change military culture. Not only that, he shouldn't because the military culture and tight discipline was essential to moving millions of soldiers in battle and building millions of guns and ships and planes and directing in the course of the war, but it was not the right environment for creating the radical new technologies that we needed to catch up and exceed the Germans. So he separated, created his own group of creative artists and scientists sequestered in various buildings across the country, including the Rad Lab at MIT. And so when they developed the technology, especially microwave radar that ended up really turning the course of the Battle of the Atlantic, which ultimately turned the course of, of the war, the European War. The first time they developed microwave radar, you had these scientists in Boston standing on buildings saying, we can see a U-boat. This is awesome. You know, they, they had these submarines in the, in the Boston Harbor, and they tested them and said, we're done. We just solved the problem. This is fantastic. Let's give it to the pilots, and we're done, and we wash our hands. We'll win the war. And they did. 1942, nothing happened. And Bush and the incident were like, wait a minute, we have this phenomenal technology. Why isn't it being used? And so he, Bush stepped in and he told the engineer, listen, get on the planes, sit in the cockpit with these pilots to figure out what's going on. So they did and they realized when they're flying over, you know, Europe or the Atlantic and they're being shot at and they have like, they're just trying to survive. And they have this black box there with 15 switches. It wasn't that the technology... Didn't work. It's just that they're being shot at. They don't have time to figure out. The leap to the human didn't make it. And they realized that the technology was fine. Their 
their user interface was lousy. So I went back to the lab and designed this, you know, the, a oscilloscope screen with a sweeping line that you see with the little dots. They put it in and boom, it really did turn the course of the war. Within the first four weeks of the Liberator bombers flying over the Atlantic, the Allies shot down more U-boats than they had in the entire war combined. And Germany lost one-third of its U-boat fleet. And within another six weeks, they declared defeat. They withdrew all the U-boats from the Atlantic, and the lanes were cleared for resupplying England and ultimately the invasion uh, and defeat of, of Germany. And so the, the lesson there is that it's not about the supply of the idea or the creation of the idea. Innovation usually fails in the transfer. And it's not just transfer one way, but it's, tr- it's feedback the other way. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Safi Bacall, a former consultant with McKinsey and former biotech CEO. He served on President Obama's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology on the Future of National Research. He's here today with Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Well, you get the buy-in. You get the money or you get the support of the group and people are working on this. You say if you are to succeed, you must live with constant failures or at least three. <laughs> three is the count. Tell us about that. Well, that I remember I was working um, in the lab one, you know, one day and we had, we had this guy named Sir James Black who was a Nobel laureate who had kind of pioneered the modern approach to drug discovery and he had flown over from Scotland. He was in his 80s at the time. He'd flown over to advise us. And we'd had these all-day kind of marathon sessions with him. And I remember one night I was pretty uh, telling him kind of depressed about some project in the lab that wasn't working very well. And he kind of leans over and he he pats me on the knee and said, oh, I can't really do a Scottish accent. He said, oh, oh boy, it's not a good drug unless it's been killed three times. (laughs) And I realized that, and I kind of took that away as the three deaths of the loon shot. It's not really an important or critical or major breakthrough unless it's gone through three deaths. And you think about that, there's actually some logic to that because if it was really easy, probably other people would have done it before. They probably would have, and, and you know, maybe if it was medium easy, there would have been one death and somebody, but three deaths means it's, it's probably turned off everybody else. And if you can survive that, you've got a pretty major breakthrough. It also occurs to me when I was thinking a lot about that and saying I've seen people that had all the support in the world, all of this, and they run into the first problem. Maybe they're dropped by somebody or one of the investors pulls out or they it looks like, oh, this didn't quite work this way. And they say, okay, we're closing up. And it's like you're closing up. <laughs> no, you just got to go back to the drawing board. You got to, or you got to, you know, stiff upper lip here, or move through. If you don't have that kind of drive, they will put you away. Those deaths will happen. But it does go go against the grain of something that's very popular in Silicon Valley of this whole kind of fast fail and pivot culture. I mean, you hit the first death, instantly go, you know, take a left turn and go somewhere else. Well, you, then you'll never make it past to the really important breakthroughs. You may find something easy that gets traction very quickly, but so will anybody else. What's the Moses trap? That's something that's very common here in Silicon Valley among my, my tech friends, which is the idea that this kind of myth that 
great companies are built by these entrepreneurs who are these brilliant technology innovators, product innovators, and everybody kind of follows them, product, 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 product. That might work for a little while. That might work for, uh, you know, some technology, you know, genius or technology guru has an interesting product or an interesting idea, and it is successful. It is innovative. It works. It it beats the competition. And then maybe there's a follow-on idea. But that only works for a short period of time because eventually people catch up. One person can't be good, than better, smarter, faster than the entire market. So the trap happens when you start having a manager or a leader who starts falling in love with the next great idea, the bigger, faster, better, the next great technology. And so I'm, I'll give an example of uh, going back to a different industry, the aviation industry. And then we can come forward to, to – um, more modern times. But let's take – everybody's heard of Pan Am, but you don't hear about it anymore. Uh, you, you might it's see gone. It, it's <laughs> gone. So what happened? Pan Am for a while was the most exciting airline, the most innovative, progressive airline. It changed the world. It brought same-day affordable travel across continents, across oceans to the world. It united the old world and the new world you know, the, the Beatles arrived on Pan Am and gave their, their first press release in the U.S. on Pan Am. The, in the 2001, the Stanley Kubrick movie, there was a Pan Am spaceship and Pan Am stewardesses. You had, you know, James Bond flew Pan Am. These, these. So what happened? So you had the founder and leader of Pan Am was a real product guy. He loved planes. He loved engines. And he couldn't get enough. A bigger – his huge success, his initial big technology success was with – Jet engines. In the 1950s, everybody thought – today we take that for granted. Of course, jet engines is fine. But in the 1950s, the idea of using a jet engine on a commercial plane was like, you are nuts. That's never going to work. You know, it's just incredibly dangerous. It's too expensive. There were lots of reports. The Rand Corporation wrote a giant report of the economics and the engineering. It is completely impossible. It will never happen, never work, blah, 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 blah. And this guy, Wantrip, said, hmm, I don't think so. And he talked Boeing into developing something called the 707, which became the first jet airline. And it was a huge success. It transformed the world in this way. But then after that, he was like, well, I look what I did. You know, this 7. So now the 737, that's even bigger, faster, better. Let's do that. And so he went from the 707. I think there was a 727. Then there was a 730. And then finally, he said, this is fantastic. The 747. It's the biggest, fastest thing you can. And meanwhile, his competitors were working on these tiny little shifts in strategy that had nothing to do with technology. Things like, I don't know, frequent flyers, uh, <laughs> you know, faster turnaround times, flying through hub and spoke rather than direct, you know, things that are not very sexy, reservation systems. Whereas he was just product, 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 engine, 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 bigger, faster, better. And then deregulation hit. High fuel prices hit, and Pan Am was finished. They had these giant, bigger, faster, better planes flying nobody. Yeah, couldn't fill them. Right. And that is very, very common. You may remember when IBM was the dominant hardware company Absolutely. in the world. Well, they broke – they had an antitrust suit, and they, the government broke them down. Because they were, they had such a grip. Right. The industry was called IBM and the Seven Dwarfs. Now, IBM saw itself as a product, 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 product company. That was another example of the Moses trap because people think 
that what happened is, oh, well, the personal computer came and took them out. But that's actually not what really happened. In fact, IBM did great in the personal computers, but they missed a small shift in strategy. And that's that while customers, big customers, institutional customers really cared about the brand and the box and the reliability of those three letters, IBM, consumers just wanted to send pictures to their friends. And all that matters was standards, things like software or microprocessor, just the same. So IBM, in focusing on product, 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 outsourced software operating system to a tiny 32-person company in Seattle called Microsoft. And they outsource the inside, the microprocessors, to another tiny, you know, a small chip company in Silicon Valley called Intel. Intel. That's got it struggling. <laughs> Today... Microsoft and Intel's value combined is just over $1.5 trillion. IBM is not even 10% of that. So that was an example of the product just focusing on bigger, faster, better, bigger, faster, better, more product, more product, more product, and missing the subtle shifts in strategy that can make a huge difference. I was thinking a lot about lucky and being lucky and being smart. In fact, I have a friend who, who always says, I'd rather be lucky than smart. And you write... Luck is the residue of design. In fact, that was Branch Rickey. That was Branch Rickey. That's right. So Branch I talk about kind of engineering serendipity. So the real managers, the, the ones who build long-lasting companies and long-lasting businesses that are sustainably innovative and seem to do well over long periods of time, they're not this kind of mythical Silicon Valley creature of a Moses standing on the top of a hill with a staff saying, this is the holy loonshot, the next great idea, you will do this. Even the, you know, the Steve Jobs myth, that's not what really happened. In fact, when he focused on product, product, it was a disaster. He got fired. It was, and the next company and the next company, that was a disaster. But the ones who really do well have a very different mindset. They're more like gardeners where they balance the artists and the soldiers. And what they're doing by balancing the artists and soldiers is they're creating, they're engineering room for serendipity to grow. It's like a nursery where you plant all these little baby ideas, these baby loon shots, and you just water them and see which, you have no idea in advance which is going to grow. It doesn't matter what market people say. Actually, you should like fire all market projection people. <laughs> it's just, a, it actually does exactly the wrong and anywhere you see like a dictionary with the word disruptive innovation, just rip that page out. <laughs> yeah. Just cross that out or, or get one get of these. Get it out of your mind. Get Don't one do of those, it. <laughs> the, those like internet blocker things. As soon as a page has the word disruptive, it just like block that page because that's all about projecting forward 10 years about some market. And you know what? If you're working on some crazy new idea, it's hard to project forward to lunch. It's barely possible to project forward a, a week. Like when they first developed the, just to switch timeframes again. When they first developed the transistor, what happened? In 1946, 1947, when they were working on it, they developed the transistor. They were trying to you know, develop better switches for telecommunication, but it didn't work very well. It was too expensive. It was too unreliable. They couldn't use it. So for five years, they didn't really know what to do with it until they figured out, well, maybe hearing aids. So did you have the scientists working on the transistor in 1946 and 1947 saying, I know what we're going to do. Let's disrupt the hearing aid market. No, yeah, that. that's not what they weren't trying to disrupt. the. So cross off disruptive innovation, cross off market projections. What you're trying to do is engineer serendipity. Work on these crazy ideas that challenge accepted beliefs. 
I've been speaking with Safi Bakal. His book is Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, the connected work of treating sudden hearing loss and severe vertigo. Also, progress in treating genetic diseases in children, including certain forms of blindness. Stay with us. You are listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Safi Bacall, the author of Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. Cross-off disruptive innovation, cross-off market projections. What you're trying to do is engineer serendipity. Work on these crazy ideas that challenge accepted beliefs. Don't worry about market potential. You never know you know, whether it's going to be a hearing aid or turn into the entire personal computer industry, who knows? Just challenge congestion. Why should you do that? Well, where do you want it? There are three places you can find out that there's a new idea that kills one of your business lines or opens up an entirely new one. A, you can read about it in a press release from your competitor. B, you can hear about it across the table when one of your Largest customers tells you solemnly, I'm sorry, but I'm taking my business to this other other person who's built this new platform. Or C, you can find out about it when a, a pair of your guys or gals comes in excitedly, says, listen, we were trying this new idea that everybody thought wouldn't work, and we got some nice traction and proof of concept. So the reason you want to nurture these loon shots and challenge accepted beliefs is because you'd rather have C than A or B. Now we get back now to Branch Rickey. Who's Branch Rickey? So Branch Rickey, so the um, idea, I'm ta- we're talking about businesses and, and creating these like two environments. You have the franchise, 
you know, the big franchise in, in my field in drug discovery, you know, the next statin and the next ulcer drug. And let's say in the film industry, you have the next Avengers movie. But then you create these little nurseries for nurturing wound shots for the untested, un, you know, you never know what they're going to happen. The biotech companies. The thing that will see the next franchise, actually. <laughs> that will become the next. So, you know, the James Bond movie was a loon shot. People said this thing will never work. This guy, there's some like 32-year-old milk truck driver uh, playing this like metrosexual Bridges spy. This is absurd, which is what the studio, all the American studios said. It's not even good. We're not even going to open it in a big city. They open in these little, you know, drive-through movie theaters in the Midwest. And then it became the greatest, most successful film franchise in history. So what you have in, in the business world, and then we'll get to sports, what you have in the business world is you have this kind of separation between the big giant players who manage franchises and creating these little noonshot nurseries of crazy things that you just try to nurture and see where they go. And the people who have done that very well in the business world, whether it's Theodore Vail who did it at AT&T by creating Bell Labs or Vannevar Bush who did it inside the federal government by – Grading, you know, separating the military from the crazy scientists. And if you look back, Branch Rickey, who was Branch Rickey? Well, he was a general manager of the Cardinals and the Dodgers. And he was probably the most successful general manager in the history of baseball. He invented the farm league system, the major league, the minor league system. And what is the major league and minor league? Well, the major league manages franchise players. The super famous multi-million dollars pitchers and hitters that are well-developed and well-tested. What are the what's the farm leagues? Well, it's these untested new pitchers from high school or, or or hitters or fielders from high school and college. You don't know how they're going to do, so you keep them separate. And what do you do? You create partnerships, and so that's how you nurture loon shots in industries, as well as you nurture loon shots in companies. The key is not just the separation; the key is the dynamic exchange. So in baseball. You have these partnerships between the major league franchise and its minor league partner. That was the system invented by Branch Rickey when he was at the Cardinals. And that's how he, he you know, won all these – I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but he won all these World Series and pennants because he found a better way to engineer serendipity, to create a nursery for all these untested players. You don't really know who's going to – some players look good and some players don't, but you just don't know. And so you just – separate them out and let them play against each other and see how they develop. But you create partnerships back and forth between the major league that develop, you know, franchise players, the major league teams that focus on how do you manage all these franchise players to create a winning team. And then the minor leagues that are really focused on nurturing young talent. And in, that's what you want to do at a company. You want to separate selling your established, mature franchise product from a different group that works on these crazy untested ideas. But the key is not to stop with separation. That's an innovation lab. Most of those fail because they get that second part wrong. The key is the dynamic managing the transfer both ways between the two. And I think what's so important is that if you're in the in the franchise end, you say that's who we normally see, whatever's on television or in the sports pages, however that is. It's like, well, we got lucky with that guy. Didn't get lucky at all. He said... Luck is the residue of design. He designed it so that the luck could spring forward. That's right. If you just look back and say, oh, my God, Branch Rickey showed up. The Cardinals won all these World Series. They just seem to be getting lucky and lucky with talent. Well, no. He created this system for nurturing serendipity, for nurturing this early stage talent. And that's how he defeated his – he won all those 
uh, World Series and got better talent for the Cardinals and won all these games. And that's what, when you translate that into the business world, nobody really knows how any crazy new idea is going to play out. What you want to do is create the structure and the systems to nurture that, to engineer the space for serendipity to happen. And to be able to recognize it when it does. I'm, tell the story about Nokia. That's a very telling story. Okay, so that that was one of the first things that when I was starting out as a, a manager um, and I was trying to read all this stuff about how to be a better leader and I was reading these great quotes. And if you look back, Nokia, Nokia was this incredible success story. They were cover of like every magazine because they had gone from a conglomerate that was famous mostly for selling toilet paper and rubber boots to like dominating the smartphone more than Apple today. They were selling half the smartphones on the planet. And they were they were on every, you know, magazine cover. They were the, the widely what are they unstoppable. They were, they were unstoppable. and they were, you know, the most they became the most valuable company in Europe. And everyone was asking, you know, the, the, the CEO and the leader, you know, what was, and they were writing about the great culture. And he was talking about, well, our cultures, we like to have a little fun and we, you know, mistakes are tolerated. And as he was writing that, as he was saying that for some interviews, as it turns out, there was a small team. This was 2000 and around 2004. There was a small team of engineers that was coming up with the next idea. They had, you know, had some success with their, you know, with their early mobile phones. And they said, you know, we have this kind of crazy idea. Let's build a, a, a mobile phone with a really big screen and make it touchscreen. And then let's put on this awesome camera. And now we have another just totally radical awesome idea. We'll have a store where people can buy these things called applications for that phone. We got camera. And the same management team that had taken Nokia for 20 years and become shot down those ideas. And that group of engineers, three years later, watched on a stage in San Francisco. They saw their ideas materialize in the iPhone as Steve Jobs availed the iPhone. And that was an example of maybe there's something more than just these words around culture. Maybe there's something else that we need to understand. What happens? How do companies go through this phase transition? And then even more interestingly, how can they change that? How can they control that transition? Well, Safi, it's been terrific. I haven't gotten to most of my questions here. <laughs> but that's okay. You could come back and see me again. Anytime you want. You got it. My guest today is Safi Bacall. His book is Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industry. It's published by St. Martin's Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Some of us, our friends, our family, or people we know, have experienced the devastating condition of sudden hearing loss. Noel Uzrin is the president and CEO of Sensorian Pharmaceuticals. Thanks God it's a rare disease. It impacts around 200,000 patients in the U.S. and in Europe. And so it's not that frequent, but when it happens, it's very debilitating. So now what are you doing? 
We are a French biotech company and we develop drugs for inner ear therapies. So the inner ear is this very delicate organ that is so small but very important for our health because it's responsible for our balance and it's responsible for our hearing. So we develop drugs, not medical device, really drugs that we can take orally. What causes sudden hearing loss? Do we know what, what does now? Unfortunately, we don't really understand what causes you know, sudden sensory neural hearing loss. In 70% of the cases, it, the causes are unknown. In 30% of the cases, it's linked to an acoustic trauma. So you might have been hit in the ear? Or... Hit in the ear or very loud noise that will actually generate then an acoustic trauma that would lead to the death of the hair cells that are responsible for our hearing. How do you develop a treatment if you don't know what caused the disease? So the science has progressed, and now we understand more and more how the inner ear functions. Actually, you have little hairs that are very important for our ability to hear because they conduct the sound. And we understand what triggers the health of these hairs and what also triggers the death of these hairs. And when they die, that's the only organ actually in the body where it doesn't regenerate. So when the hair cell dies, you lose the function. You lose your ability to hear in that specific sound frequency. So these people with the sudden hearing loss, if you look in their ears, you see the hairs are gone. Yeah. The hair, the hair cells are gone. The connection between the hair cells and the neurons are gone. So then you can't hear. So no matter what caused it, that's your target. That's what you're going after. Absolutely. So what we do is like we understand what triggers the death, the death process of these hair cells. And we try to stop it, you know, as quickly as we can using our drug. Now, don't you have two drugs? So the first drug is actually for very severe vertigo, and the second one is for hearing loss. That's ah. the beauty of this uh, inner ear. It's so small, but it's important for our balance, and it's important for our hearing. That does two functions, at Absolutely. least, at least, Correct. that we know of. Now, what exactly does your drug do? So our most advanced drug is currently in phase 2B. So it means we are dosing patients. It's a global trial. And we are developing it for the most severe expression of vertigo. So the vestibule, which is one important part of the inner ear, is responsible for our balance. And when it's malfunctioning, people actually suffer from very extreme vertigo. It's so bad that actually you end up in emergency room. It's not something where you just say, I'm going to lay down for two hours, it's going to pass. So let's imagine I have that disease that it's called acute unilateral vestibulopathy. I'll end up in emergency room and my symptoms are very similar to the stroke one. So p doctors take me immediately, they check I'm not having a stroke, they check I'm not having a brain tumor. And once they remove this hypothesis that it's not the brain, they know it's the ear. So then you have this very acute, severe vertigo. And the standard of care in Europe is that you are being hospitalized during the crisis. Unfortunately, when you follow the patient journey, half of the patients that, that had that crisis they will have complications longer term. We were founded in the French NIH is that on the vestibular neurons, there are some specific receptors that are called H4 receptors. And what we do is that we modulate the activity of the H4 receptors. And when you do that, you actually relieve the patients from their symptoms. 
And that the beauty of that drug is that you don't sedate the patient, which is very important for the long-term recovery. Because today, the way we treat patients is like we put we sedate them, we put them to bed, we make them sleep so that they don't suffer from the vertigo symptoms, but it impacts the brain and the long-term central compensation, which helps with the long-term recovery. Okay, but what does it do? So you modulate, so you take it, you know, it's an oral drug that you take, and you inhibit the activity of the vestibular neurons that actually lead to mismatching information, you know, from the two ears. And And that's vertigo. And that's vertigo. You suffer from vertigo when actually you have one of your ear that is sending confusing information compared to the other ear. And that's what's causing, like, the vertigo. With respect to the sudden hearing loss, what does that drug do? So our drug has actually some very interesting characteristics. Um, It's a 5-HT-free antagonist and calcineurin inhibition. So what does it mean? These actually... Uh, proteins that uh, accelerate the hair cell death process. So our drug inhibits the calcineurin. So when you do that, you slow down the, the hair cell death process that lasts usually two weeks. And then what you see is that you restore some of the hearing after the uh, acoustic you trauma. You can just kind of interfere yes. with, with what's going on there. And yeah. then just enough that it can take over yeah, again. Exactly. So you, you, in a very simple manner, calcineurin is like the fuel for the hair cell death process. So what we do is like we inhibit it so you have less fuel. So then the hair cell death process just stops. With respect to the sudden hearing loss, how do you test a drug? Do you just wait for people to come in to say, oh, I have it? Yeah, exactly. So that's going to be, I would say, the complexity of our clinical trial because it's an acute disease. So as you said, it's, it, you don't really know when it's going to happen. So we're working really closely with the emergency room and the ENT you know, services to make sure that when the patients show up, we can actually enroll them in the clinical trial. You have to show up. At two in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or whatever time they're there. Yeah, we have actually a global team, you know, we're working with uh, experts, you know, clinical research organizations that deploy resources wherever we need. With respect to the vertigo, how do you test that? So we had a very interesting test, actually. Um, I don't know if you, you knew, but one of the typical tests that you uh, have to go through when you go visit an ENT is called the caloric test. What's a caloric test? You put cold water in your ear canal, and when you do that, you actually induce a transient vertigo. So what we did, you know, with actually healthy volunteers, we induced that transient vertigo. It's not very severe, it's not very long, but what we wanted to do is at least check that the drug was active, you know, that it was you reaching... Have one, you have one ear sending one signal yeah. and another yeah. ear sending the other signal. Absolutely. For a while while the cold water got hit. Absolutely. So, yeah, one of the ear. And uh, for the healthy volunteers that were treated with uh, Sense 111, which is the name of the drug, what we notice is that we reduce the intensity of the vertigo by at least 30%. We also reduce the duration of the vertigo, and we also delayed the onset. So for us, it was a good evidence of activity that the drug was actually active, reaching the inner ear, and now we're conducting the clinical trial. 
I'd like to also say that at Sensorion, we're very interested into a third indication where there is a huge unmet medical need. Um, so very cisplatin that is very commonly used in chemotherapy and it's very effective for the kids. You know, we save the children suffering from cancer, solid cancer. 80-90% survival rate. Unfortunately, cisplatin is autotoxic, so it means it kills the hair cells and the children end up deaf. And when you think about the child between the age of uh, zero and six years old, when you can't hear anymore, it means you have actually huge challenges to even learn to read. It means you have even challenges to acquire the language. So we spent a lot of time with the authorities to understand what would it take to go into kids and start the clinical trials into children immediately. So that's the third program we will conduct. Well, Noelle, thank you so much. I so appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Thank you, Moira. Nar Uzren is the president and CEO of Sensorian Pharmaceuticals in Montpellier, France. More information is available at sensorian-pharma.com. That's sensorian, S-E-N-O-R-I-O-N, sensorian-pharma.com. At this point, pretty much everyone knows that the DNA we were born with physically defines us. Less commonly known is how that DNA makes our bodies work, or when our DNA is faulty, it can create a genetic disease. Daniel DeBoer is the CEO of ProQR Therapeutics. So our human DNA holds all the information for human life. And you can think of the DNA as a, as a library that contains all this information. Um, before uh, this DNA can produce protein that fulfills all the, all the critical functions in our body, uh, a copy is made of this library. And that copy is called, a, is called the RNA. And that copy is then used as a blueprint to manufacture the, the protein. So when there is a mistake in the DNA in this library, that mistake gets copied into the RNA, into this blueprint. And um, that blueprint then then leads to a a faulty or a broken protein or no protein at all. And that leads to the cause of a disease. So what can be done then with that RNA? Yeah, that's a great question. So... Um, when, when, when patients are sick due to a genetic disease, there's a number of different ways to, to treat that. You can look at uh, repairing or replacing this broken protein that's, that eventually needs to fulfill these critical tasks in the body. Uh, you could focus at the DNA by replacing that, that particular p- piece of DNA in the library or uh, repairing it. Um, what we do is we repair the blueprint. So we use medicines that target this, this RNA, the blueprint, and there uh, restore or modify that, that mistake, that defect. Therefore, the blueprint gets repaired and makes normal or at least functional protein that then can uh, basically treat the patient's disease. And that's what you've been working on at yes. ProQR. At ProCure, we started six years ago with, um, with, with this idea, targeting the RNA, editing the RNA um, to treat severe genetic diseases. So we started with uh, cystic fibrosis. We have now expanded into certain forms of genetic blindness and uh, a certain uh, very severe genetic skin disease that leads to blistering all over the body and uh, a very low quality of life. These are all very different diseases, but the commonality is that all of them have a genetic defect 
in the in the RNA that we can repair with our technologies, and it then leads to normal functional protein that takes away the underlying cause under the disease. How do you edit these RNAs? In the lab, we can manufacture small bits and pieces of RNA that interact with the RNA in your body, and uh, through that interaction can modify the RNA such that it makes then normal protein. Now, is this an injection? Is this an infusion? Is it a pill? Um, it depends a bit on the disease. We um, uh, deliver it through local administration. So for the skin, it's a cream that's put on top of the skin. For the eye, it's an intravitreal administration, so an injection inside of the eye. And for the lung, for cystic fibrosis, it's an inhalation. So we inhale it directly into the lung through a nebulizer. Uh, and through those routes of administration, we get very efficient delivery to those target organs. So when a patient is blind, we get very efficient delivery to the eye. When a patient has the skin disease, we get very efficient delivery to the skin and so on. Um, so yeah, it's locally delivered. Now, how do you know that this RNA won't just go all over your body and, and cause a problem? Well, first of all, we know that if it would go all over the body, it would not cause a problem. So it would, it would only work in the cells that are diseased, and in all the other cells, it would just sit there and would not cause any problem. Um, but we, we know from our preclinical studies and our now clinical trials that um, uh, once the drug is administered to a certain area, it will stay there. It will typically not distribute throughout the body. What good luck. <laughs> we had yeah. to learn that, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. No, I think we, we are banking on scientific advancements of the last 25 years where a lot of trial and error has been done in the space of RNA medicines. And yeah, a lot of error has happened. And a lot of lessons were learned. And we are able to incorporate all of that and in now translating this, um, this very exciting science into actual medicines for patients. In the area of childhood blindness, in a particular condition which causes blindness in childhood, how do you possibly get these very young children, how do you get them into a trial uh, and with the permission and support of their parents? They're so young. Yeah, so we're developing a drug for Leber's congenital amaurosis type 10. That's a mouthful. It's uh, LCA 10 in short. These children are born with impaired vision and typically are fully blind by the age of six. Uh, today, there is no treatment option whatsoever. So as soon as they go blind, um, that's the end of, of their vision and they will remain blind for the rest of their life. We're developing this RNA treatment that can uh, potentially restore vision in the patients that have gone blind. Um, and uh, preserve vision in the patients that, that have not progressed that far yet. Um, with, this, uh, with this therapy, we're now in clinical trials, and we are indeed treating both adult but also pediatric patients in this clinical trial. Um, I think the patient community and, and, and the parents of patients are uh, very eager to find treatments for their disease. This, this disease has been around for a long time and, and never had any treatment hope on the horizon uh, today, with what we're doing, there's a, there's a hope for these patients that they, um, at some point in their life, might be able to see again. Um, and I think that that leads to a lot of excitement in the community and a lot of willingness to participate in this research. Uh, I think an important aspect of what you what you mentioned is that parents are willing to have their children participate in these trials because the the drug that we develop only has a temporary effect on the eye. So even if it would do something that we wouldn't desire, 
it would not have a, have a uh, damage for life to the eye of the patient. So everything we do to the RNA is temporary, and therefore I think the, um, uh, the risk in participating in such a, such a trial is much lower. Well, why is it temporary? So continuously in our cells, in all of all the cells in our body, uh, the RNA is copied from the DNA. So continuously we make copies, these blueprint copies of the library that holds our DNA. And these copies called the RNA stay around for a few days, maybe a few weeks in the cell, and then they, um, then they go away, then they uh, break down. So every, every time that there's a new RNA made, um, a new fresh copy of the, the library is made. And therefore everything we change to the RNA is temporary. So how would you treat people then over time? So these would be chronic therapies. So uh, patients would probably have, these, have to take these drugs like two or three or four times a year um, to be able to uh, not have any symptoms from their disease. Um, so yeah, it would be chronic th- treatment. But always drug delivery is technology and technology can get better, faster, cheaper. Absolutely. So obviously for next generation of our therapies, we're looking at smarter ways to get it there uh, quicker, keep it there for a longer period of time and um, uh, reduce the dosing frequency. But you know, for many of these rare diseases, uh, a treatment that really takes away the symptoms of a disease uh, is such a big hope for these patients that if we can do that in a way that is you know, acceptable in terms of dosing frequency, that would not be a problem for, for people. This technology is very broadly applicable. So we we focus on diseases like Leber's congenital amaurosis, where the uh, genetic defect is very well understood, so where we exactly know how this genetic defect leads to the disease manifestation, how we can interfere in that with these RNA therapies. Um, outside of the eye, this is very broadly applicable in many different target organs, in many different types of diseases. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very exciting technology that potentially provides hope for a lot of diseases that today are untreatable. And first, you're going to be in Europe? So we run our clinical studies in both Europe and the U.S. We are a Dutch company, indeed, in the Netherlands, but we are publicly traded in New York, in the U.S. So we operate on both sides. We have an office here in Cambridge as well. Um, so we um, run our clinical studies in both Europe and the U.S. Um, for, for all these different indications. Daniel, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Thanks for having me. Daniel DeBoer is the CEO of ProQR Therapeutics. More information is available at ProQR.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.